enough. Mm-hmm. All right, and I have everything layered to be where I want it to be. All right, we're good. This week on Oi Spaceman, the Deadly Assassin, and assorted other stuff. Through the millennia, the Time Lords of Gallifrey led a life of peace and ordered calm, protected against all threats from lesser civilizations by their great power. But this was to change. Suddenly and terribly, the Time Lords faced the most dangerous crisis in their long history. You're listening to Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. A nerdy podcast hosted by a husband and wife team who take a loving but critical look at all things in Ooville. We're sex positive, queer friendly, and not afraid to speak our minds. Warning, naughty language, spoilers, a general disregard of all things Stephen Moffat, and other adult content may lie within. I'm like imagining orchestral music booming in the background. Because isn't that the same description that we hear or we see all scrolled out at the beginning of the episode or no? It is. That, that's it, is. it yeah. yeah. Uh, the only episode of the classic series, or I think the new series, to start with an opening crawl. Uh, this was before Star Wars, just to let Yeah, you know. no, there are a few things in here that I was like, before Star Wars, right? And you were like, yeah. Yep. And then I'd say, before the Borg, right? And you'd be like, yeah. Yeah, there was a resistance futile moment. Uh-huh. So, not that I'm saying that anybody stole anything, but, you know. There's a certain amount of stuff that's just kind of floating around in the air at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, um, zeitgeist. The zeitgeist, yeah. So, welcome. This is episode 46, Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. I'm Daniel. Oi! That's Shayna. That's Shayna. I uh, forgot to mention it. Uh, this episode, uh, written by our good old friend Robert Holmes. <gasps> Bobby H. Dog. Speaking, Speaking of, dogs. of dogs, we have someone making a voice. And directed by David Maloney, who uh, directed uh, a bunch of, or a few Doctor Whos, including um, Genesis of the Daleks. Okay, I'm having a title moment. Which one is Genesis of the Daleks? Is that Are the you very a Doctor first Who fan at all? Doctor, I am. I just suck at titles. I suck at titles. Genesis with poems. of the Daleks, possibly the single greatest Dalek episode. Oh, ever. okay, that one. The Tom Baker with Davros and. Hey, you know. as soon as you tell me what happens in it, I know which episode it is. I just don't know the names. Okay. Okay. That's <laughs> I thought Genesis. I have of the an Daleks. MFA in poetry, and there are poems that I like memorized lines from that I love. I don't know what they're called. I have to look it up every time. So, like, blame it on the fibro, yo. Fibro fog! Fibromyalgia. Yay, there we go. Anyway. Anyway. um, (laughs) Directed by David Maloney, written by mm -hmm. Robert Holmes. Uh, We are smack dab in the middle of season 14. It's so weird to think that this is season 14. Yeah. And uh, pretty much uh, the Deadly Assassin is pretty much right smack dab in the middle of the series, of the classic series. Because it ran for 26 years, and so halfway through the 13th year is kind of halfway in the middle of the I show. I mean, when you put it that way, this episode makes a lot of sense. Right. Of course, they wouldn't have known that at the time. No, but um, to, to kind of say, you know, that hypothetical bell curve, mm-hmm. you know, that this is kind of... It, it hits a lot of good points, um, and it makes sense for them to be in stride at that point. So before we get to Deadly Assassin, I want mm-hmm. us to talk a little bit about there, there, there are two stories that we've watched explicitly to do for this uh, podcast that yeah. we just kind of never got around to doing. Yeah. Uh, it has been a couple of weeks since we've recorded. Um, mm-hmm. We missed a couple of weeks on our upload schedule as well. Um, thanks to everybody who listened to our uh, live episode, our live time episode as well. Yeah. Um, we've got a fair number of listens. I didn't get any comments on it. But hopefully people enjoy it. Um, <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, before we get into The Deadly Assassin, um, I did want to talk, um, previously we had tried to uh, watch 
um, The Web of Fear yeah. for this show. And uh, then most recently we tried to watch The Mask of Mandragora yeah. for this show. And I think the reason we didn't actually do um, podcast episodes for them is pretty similar for both. So would you like to talk about our experience in watching The Mask of Mandragora, Shana? You know, I want to say I, I remember like relatively enjoying watching both of these episodes. I, I don't know if that's Ruthie being my lie detector or not. Um, <laughs> I remember vaguely liking these episodes, but I cannot tell you a damn thing that either of them is about or what happened. Maybe there were tunnels, hallways. <laughs> There's a reason that the uh, that I'm the not great, even sure um, which which companion was it. Sarah Jane. Sarah Jane is in Mask of Mandragora. Mm-hmm. I do love her. And the Web of Fear is the second dot one. Um, right. It's the one that's right before. Uh, right after Enemy of the World. It has some great costuming, but... Well, the big thing about... Let's let's start with The Web of Fear. Yeah. Um, the big thing about that one for us is Anne Travers is absolutely phenomenal. Oh, yes. Anne Travers. God, I love her so much. And we could sit and we could talk for a long time about how much we love Anne Travers. Yeah. But The Web of Fear is kind of a story that, you know, it's... There's some great stuff in it. It's great to watch. It's fun to sit yeah. down and watch. And it's there's the lots first, of costumes I would want to do from it. First appearance of the brig. Um, is that the first? Yep. Oh, right, because he said he calls him something else, and he's um, like, "No, brigadier, no." Rediscover? No, no, he's a no. He's actually a colonel in the in this one. It's oh, okay. The, first, the character's first appearance in the Love of Fear. Oh, he's a brigadier okay. as of the invasion. But um, listen to this. I'm watching so much Doctor Who, I can't keep any of it straight. Yeah, well, Alas. you never you think can't keep anything straight. Nope. Um, especially since you're super queer. We just watched Mad Max Fury Road. So, oh my uh, god, yeah. So, side note, friends of, of of the podcast, if you have yet to see Mad Max Fury Road at this point, which who knows when this is going to go up, Daniel does, I don't. In the next few days. In the next few days. If you've yet to see it, go see it now. Because, man, I would love to see a Furiosa in a Doctor Who episode. You know what I mean? Like, to have a female badass takes, you know, takes no shit. To have that kind of character. There is a, there is a Seventh Doctor story kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah? No, but I mean like now. Oh, like now, yeah. Oh, what? Um, The uh, Jewel Thief in uh, Planet of the Dead doesn't count? Shane's just staring at me. Just staring. You know this is a podcast, so just people can actually staring. see you give me the dirty I was hoping that that, that uh, pregnant silence would would have uh, translated well. No, no, the, the chick and the jewel doesn't do it for me. Okay. How about Martha Jones? Martha Jones was a badass. Martha Jones was a badass who should have had her own spinoff series, a.k.a. Torchwood. She should have been in Torchwood. And then Torchwood should have been better. Um, but, you know, those are just my quick summaries of how that goes. Anyways. Anyway, Web of Fear. Web of Fear and Travers. I love a lot of kind of, you know, the stuff you always hear me say. Like, there are some good tertiary characters Mm -hmm. and Travers. There's some good talk about science and the nature of... But overall, unfortunately, it ends up just being like... I don't really know what happens in the episode, except for Anne Travers gets to be really cute a lot. And she gets to be, and smart gets to be a scientist. And, and witty. To, and... You know, um, there's a lot of small character moments. There's a lot of, yeah. kinda, you know, people who's who's the, the mole, who's kind of doing all this stuff. Yeah, I think if we were to go back, and I know we were kind of focusing on 
companions originally for a while. We're still focusing still on focusing on companions. Um, but if we were gonna talk just about like character moments and go back and say, okay, tertiary characters that have great moments and are bigger than the episode that they're in, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like Anne Travers deserves, I think, her own time of that. Her relationship with is it her uncle? Her, her dad? Yeah. Sorry. I was like, hmm. There's a Dr. Travers who appears mm-hmm. in, I think we're eventually going to come back to the Low Fear, and I think we're going to listen to the audio and do the reconstruction of the Ab- Abominable Snowman, mm. which is the episode where Travers first appears. And this mm. is kind of what I'm getting, what I'm trying to get at, is that mm-hmm. um, the first Doctor era is kind of, the show's kind of a science fiction show. Mm-hmm. After that, what you see is you see it kind of runs into... They have a formula, and they kind of execute a formula, mm-hmm. and the formula changes every few years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when people say, like, oh, man, Doctor Who, it's like a different thing every week. I mean, really, when you look at the history of the show, in the beginning, it kind of was that, mm-hmm. um, but it becomes much less anthology show and much more, um, we're kind of telling the same kind of general stories. And I mean, like, season five of The Web of Fear appears is the uh, base under siege scene. The only story right. that isn't a base under siege with a monster is uh, The Enemy of the World, which mm-hmm. is a great story, but it's the only one that doesn't have that formula in that time frame. Yeah, and the way we're watching that, I don't think I realized that. I mean, if we were to sit down, and, I mean, A, you can't watch those because most of them are missing, but if you were to right. sit down and watch all 40-whatever episodes that aired during that season in a row, I mean, it would feel very, like... It's all kind of the same, you know? Yeah, um, and I mean, then it's kind of like a like a house, a, a, a house MD, the TV show, mm-hmm. where it's like, it's the same exact setting, yeah, procedure, it's always everything. Lupus. It's, always, it's yeah. always like, okay, well, at this point, we're going to guess the wrong disease, and then now we're going to guess the right disease and save the day. I mean, ultimately, there's a formula, mm-hmm. and the formula works as long as... You know, as long, as long as the pieces that you put into the formula still work, and as long as yeah. you're, you know, you're working within a genre. And um, so, like, I think this is not a bad example of that genre. No, not at all. I think um, there have been better Doctor Who examples of that genre, but there have certainly been worse Doctor Who examples of that genre. Well, so, like... Moving forward, Mask yeah. of Mandragora. So, uh, Mask of Mandragora is kind of... Uh, the reason I wanted to, to cover that one is... A, we are still looking through the lens of companions, and right. it's Sarah Jane. Uh, it's one of the very last Sarah Jane episodes. Uh, um, so you get to see um, Sarah Jane as the later Sarah Jane, right? Uh, with Tom Baker. Um, well, and I think I did not realize this yet because I have not seen as much Sarah Jane. The later Sarah Jane is starting to doubt the Doctor, and I think that 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 was kind of the big thing that I took from this episode mm-hmm. was that their relationship had already been changing well Liz Sladen and Tom Baker's have such a clearly amazing chemistry at this mm-hmm. point that they're just it feels like they're just bouncing stuff off each other constantly yeah and they I mean such a comfortable it's so comfortable that I can I mean like honestly it's so comfortable I kind of see why they said we need to get rid of her how do we get rid of her so she's just gonna drop her off and leave her you know <laughs> right. like because like what other way would she leave except for like extremely abrupt right. and without clear reason you know well we other didn't than watch, she we didn't watch the hand of fear um yeah but, but I mean I know yeah 
I have. Um, I've shown you the, like, Sarah Jane leaving scene before, mm-hmm. like, on YouTube or whatever. So, you know, um, eventually we'll do the Hand of Fear. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want to do, I mean, I've kind of run into issues because I've been going through all the stories that we've covered in this in this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I realize I'm basically showing you all of my favorites because, like, I'm picking the episodes and I'm like, well, if I have the choice between watching The Mask of Mandragora, which is a perfectly fine piece of television, or The Hand of Fear, which is a genius, mm-hmm. I'm going to show you The Hand of Fear. But then you only see the really, really good ones. Yeah. And it's a little bit, you know, um, I didn't want to just, just show you No, that's ones. fair. Um, and I mean, like, ultimately, mask, The Mask of Mandragora, which was really hard for me to say. Mandragora, Mandragora. Like, I don't Mandragora. know why. Again, I liked it. I don't really remember a thing about it. If, yeah. like, somebody were to it's sit down and talk to me about science it. Science and religion and astrology and, you know, there, there, are some, there are some interesting ideas going on here. It's kind of in this, like, it's merging some genres. It's doing, it's See, got a, this cult of people, you know, like the, the Dimnos cult or whatever. Um, it's got some crazy shit in it. Um, See, and like even with that, I don't actually remember okay. the rest of the episode, which is the point I'm making. Like all of your description sounds like, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, but the details don't stand out. To Got me. the guy with the crazy facial hair. He's the astrologer. Oh yeah. Yeah, that you remember. Crazy facial hair. Tom no, Baker gets mm. to ride a horse. The horse I remember more because that was. Uh, anyway, there so, there are good moments. I would rather let's go ahead and move on and talk about the deadly assassin. Yeah, I, we're gonna get. I'm gonna. I just had one more like little uh, sentence, oh. and that is that the thing with season fourteen, the thing with like the the Hinchcliffe era, and this is when Robert Holmes becomes script editor. Now mm. we've watched all of season twelve, um, from Robot to Revenge of the Cybermen, which includes Genesis of the Dalek, includes Centaur mm-hmm. um, Experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Centaur Experiment. But the late period uh, Hinchcliffe era is very dark. Um, it's it's very, very dark. Um, and Deadly Assassin is, is no well, change that. And this is also the era, and I'm going to tell mm-hmm. you, like the Hinchcliffe era is kind of like, for some historical reasons and some artistic reasons, there are a lot of people who would call it the absolute pinnacle of the show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when I was looking up quotes uh, to talk about in The Deadly Assassin, I mean... To some degree, like, I want to sit down and do a close reading of the scripts. Like, so many of the lines in this mm-hmm. are just really packed and interesting and full of ideas and political intrigue. But it also is very clearly um, talking about contemporary issues, mm-hmm. which is a big problem that I have with um, contemporary to us who. Um, but... <laughs> he who shall not be named. Yeah. Oh. But so like looking at that and, you know, the one bit of trivia I saw is like, yes, this was intentionally in response to things like the Manchurian Candidate and Kennedy's assassination and like all of these ideas of politics and history and who makes politics and who makes history. Well, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on it's here. An, I mean, it's powerful, too. It's not just... Here we're talking about the Deadly Assassin. Yes. Sorry, we've already moved on to the Deadly Assassin. Moving on officially to the Deadly Assassin. Mm -hmm. Sorry, just wanted to cover why we haven't covered a couple of stories and why we missed Mm -hmm. a couple weeks. And also just kind of introduce, like, Mm -hmm. the Hinchcliffe era. Yeah, and so um, the Hinchcliffe era is definitely, seems to me, to be... I can definitely hear the voice in this show saying Doctor Who can get you through what's going on right now. Like, it it definitely feels like it is a message to its audience about culture and ideas. 
It's not just a fluffy entertainment show. Like, it really wants right. to talk about serious things. It, it is, I mean, it's less political, I think, than, um, I mean, The Deadly Assassin is political. Yeah. But I think The Hinchcliffe era in general, it's doing a lot of, you know, pastiches of, uh, you know, old horror movies and that sort of thing. There's okay. a lot of kind of, uh, The Pyramids of Mars, for instance, which is basically the doctor dropped into a um, mummy movie. You know, that's essentially yeah. what that is. Yeah. Um, and so, kind of merging genres and that sort of thing. There's a lot of kind of media criticism that comes around. Like, this is the era where you're really starting to just drop the Doctor into different movies and essentially just have him be in different kinds of stories. And I think that, like, you know, as somebody who has a background in writing, like, I like that. I like being able to see we know our character so well that mm-hmm. what what kind of fun it is to say, okay, well, let's put this character in this different situation. Right. Um, so it really is about... And I mean, how years had how years how many years had Tom Baker been the Doctor at this point? By the beginning of by the beginning of season fourteen, he was in his. This would have been the beginning of his third year third as the Doctor. Year. So you can tell that there's an understanding of what Tom Baker can do, which uh-huh. is a lot yep. as an actor. You can definitely tell that there's an understanding of who the fourth Doctor is, as opposed to any other Doctor. Um, and who the fourth Doctor is is. Kind of liberal bohemian scientist math genius, like <laughs> right. who a little bit of an anarchist, um, probably more than a little bit of an anarchist. But so you have all of these things, and I think what I just I really admire about these episodes, and in particularly I'm talking about the deadly assassins because it's on my mind. Um, there's a consistency and a thought mm-hmm. of this show isn't just entertainment. If we don't want it to be. Right. No, there, there's definitely um, something more going on. Okay. Deadly Sorry. Assassin. Written by Robert Holmes. Of course. You need Bobby to, H. Dog. You need to introduce a bunch of shit to your audience. Hand it to Robert Holmes, who's also your script editor and has been for the last two and a half years. Um, and he says, fuck it, let's write a paragraph and have Tom Baker narrate it. At the very beginning of the episode, which uh, I read to you, um, you know, an attempt at kind of the Gallifreyan epic here, an attempt at uh, really giving you, this is your first really good look at the society. Well, it, I feel like it set the scene very well. It does. Um, but, like, so much stuff is in this episode. Mm. Um, so much, like, like the Pridonian chapter and the, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, that all, that all came right from here. Like, that's not... Like, really? This is you, the first time first any of time, this... This is the first time any of this happened. I mean, let me tell you, like, the, the first look you ever get at members of the Doctor's species is at the end of the War Games when time, when Troughton regenerates, right? Mm-hmm. Which you haven't seen, but Troughton, and they don't really, they don't, you don't really get any sense of, like, who they are. Mm-hmm. There's no, like, context, and they kind of just forget some of the details later on. And then you get a little bit in the third Doctor area, you get to see, like, some functionaries kind mm-hmm. of doing, you know, but they're just, this is the first time you actually get to visit Gallifrey, you get to see the mm-hmm. Doctor on Gallifrey, you get to see the Doctor really, like, it's, like, seeing the society granted there were some moments with costume that made me giggle you know the guard walks through the door and like four pieces get caught on the door frame as he's walking through you're talking about the red helmets and yeah, the, uh, yeah. um <laughs> you're you're gonna see some more of that in the end in a couple in a couple of our episodes yeah. actually we're gonna so cost this is this is like the era where shana is beginning to wonder if she's not going to like costuming quite as much um although the uh I guess he's an investigator, uh, the Czech guy. You're thinking of Spandrel. 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 Who is George when, Pravda, real when, name Yuri Pravda. Mm-hmm. 
when we see him at the beginning, the kind of like leatherish looking skull cap uh-huh. and the almost it's kind of monk meets military wear that they have. Yep. That I really like. And that honestly gives me a lot of information about their society too. Yep. What I like about and I'm learning very quickly, what I like about Robert Holmes is, you know, Bobby H. Dog to those of us who know him and love him. Um Bobby H. Dog is really connected into science fiction as like I I think I don't know how I want to say this historically like you feel like oh this guy knows what he's doing in the realm of science fiction he knows how to do world building Robert Holmes is probably one of the I don't want to I'm not trying to be insulting to the other writers on Doctor you know or anyway but I think Robert Holmes could have had a career as an actual like novelist science fiction novelist Um, he feels like his work feels very of a kind with a lot of the other, uh, science fiction that was being published. Um, probably not quite like in the mid seventies that it got a little bit more humanistic, but I mean, you could put a Robert Holmes script next to like an Asimov story. Absolutely. And it feels kind of very of of the same kind. Like Holmes is doing a lot more like merging of genres. He's doing a lot more like he's doing it in a different way. He's writing for television, not Mm -hmm. for for books or whatever, but, but I think, I mean, there is Holmes. Actually, I want to thinking man science. Fiction. I want to read a quote now because it it kind of fits what I want to say. In that we get a lot of story compacted in these brief interactions, and this isn't until actually I don't know which episode it is. The doctor has stolen some robes to go in. This is in episode two. To the hearing, this the oh no, this is episode one. I mean, they're not called... They're going to the Panopticon. Thank you, Panopticon. I'm forgetting all the real words, the Doctor Who words, and I'm like, it's like a Senate meeting. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Um, we... I I don't really care about the... Like, let me just tell you. I, you know, as a fan, I don't care about all the lore of, like, the Panopticon mm -hmm. and, like, caring about, like, all this stuff. There are people that are losing their shit listening to you right now going, like, he's in the Senate thing, you know? (laughs) Alright, if bit, you're losing your shit with me right now, I'm totally okay with it. It's a little it. bit like being on a Star Wars podcast and being like, you know, the little light thingies that they use to fight, you know? Hey, <laughs> if I was to call it a laser sword, I would not be inaccurate. No. Um, I'm that one would get me in way more trouble. <laughs> Anyways, um, no, like, okay, I am a Doctor Who geek, but I'm, like, let's, let's get it. I'm a story geek. Yeah. And so for me, this moment where the Doctor is in disguise, he's trying not to let anybody notice him, but he sees, he's been watching, um, the news, essentially, and there's this commentator, Runcible, who the Doctor recognizes from, like, boyhood school days or something, mm-hmm. and is like, basically like, oh, what a tool. Oh my god, he's still such a tool. Um, so he runs into him and says, Rensible, my dear chap, how nice to see you. And Rensible, what? Oh, I don't believe we've, um, oh, oh, I say, weren't you expelled or something? Some scandal? And the doctor, oh, it's all been forgotten about now, old boy. Says, where have you been all these years? Blah, blah, blah. And then Rensible says, well, if you leave such a rackety life, have you had a facelift? And the doctor says, several so far. And so you get this kind of understanding of who the doctor was as apparently a young man mm-hmm. um, at school, how he understands this kind of social structures here. But we also kind of get a commentary on how he views his own growth yep. um, in that Runcible calls him rickety and is like, you must have had a facelift. And he's kind of like, yeah, fuck you. Um, 
I I love those moments because I feel like those moments are just as thoughtful as some of the bigger moments. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, this is an era where they they do a really good job of uh, selling the world very quickly. You know, you, mm-hmm. you they're they're not. Um, you know, and telling it through dialogue instead of having to, like, say, like... It doesn't feel like exposition, even though it is largely exposition. No, you know, the it, commentary about the TARDIS was something else, like... They say, like, oh, there's a Mark 40 TARDIS. What? That's impossible! Nobody uses those anymore. <laughs> a little bit like being like, what are you doing driving a Model T? You know? Yeah. It what? feels, you know... Yeah, and then uh, the reason I wanted to note that was because... Um, the doctor is inside the TARDIS when they're talking about it. He says, obsolete twaddle, take no notice, my dear old thing. And he pats the TARDIS. Um, and so that was me saying like, okay, yes, he treats the TARDIS like his girlfriend sometimes. Well, you also notice, particularly in episode one, the doctor spends a lot of time kind of talking to himself. Mm-hmm. Um, this story is uh, incredibly significant in terms of us talking about companions. This one is one we have to cover mm. because this is the only story in the classic series with no companion right not only is there no companion there's not really a companion surrogate there's not like no i mean this is very much tom baker leading man in adventure movie this is what tom baker wanted the show to be Mm -hmm. um tom baker didn't think he needed a companion he was an egotistical maniac and thought like i didn't want to share the screen um at one point later on tom baker had an idea where he said what if you put like a little piece of talking cabbage on my shoulder and i just talked to the cabbage and like explain things to the cabbage and that way he didn't have to have a co-star taking over the screen with him okay Tom Baker, you're being kind of a dick. I still love you. He, he has I gotten still, better. I still want to get an outfit with like big poet sleeves and red pants and... <laughs> the pirate look that he yeah. has through, you know, like... Through the surreal landscape of mind stuffs. But so in that scene, we kind of build up to what then becomes kind of a turning point in my eyes of the whole story is that the doctor is making a case to goth who has some lovely eyeshadow and like bronzer on his cheeks by the way i, I think goth uh, the actor i wrote it down uh bernard horsefall mm-hmm. uh i think he looks best in the matrix scenes where he kind of looks like a big game hunter in like the yeah. 30s or something oh like, yeah it definitely feels like an adventure serial that makes much more sense than his like glittery pol- politico face but yeah and these two lines and this is what i'm going to say uh in terms of like talking about um politics and contemporary culture because these two lines stood out to me as like applicable today where goth gets mad at the doctor mm-hmm. and he says he is abusing a legal technicality and the doctor says no sir i am claiming a legal right <laughs> i think arguably in this case the doctor is doing both <laughs> and you know and i in this case he really is doing both he, he's he's running for president just so that he can have an extra few hours to like solve the crime and he totally is but what i love about it is if we're talking about the nature of politics and um we'll talk a little bit more i have one more kind of quote to mention near the end um talking about who gets to decide what is abuse of the mm-hmm. law and mm-hmm. who gets to decide when it is a right right um how we how we interpret these things like you know with our our current god i feel like one of my freshmen writing a paper in the current political situation of our time well just say what you mean because you know you're, you're being vague right now am i being vague um yeah 
you know, talking about because Obama's trying to take our rights away and well, and talking about Texas with the national violence. yeah racial yeah. politics in America right now right you know and not just racial politics feminist politics um politics of uh, hierarchy one of my new favorite words you should define um, that because we haven't defined them all. yeah no so hierarchy um talks about the intersection of patriarchy and racism and sexism and talks about how we live in a political system that reinforces um unhealthy behaviors let's call it that um and i think that really in this episode even though it is a manchurian candidate like figure out who done it kind of thing that is largely the text of this story is mm-hmm. saying okay well this one thing happened we can tell we can spin this story 20 ways well and you know ultimately in part four that's kind of what the story becomes is like mm-hmm. after like after the real resolution when it's like the master's on the run you know goth has been sorry spoiler alert not yeah who cares but no you know goth has been revealed as the bad guy mm-hmm. um you know all, all that sort possibly of thing. under the mind control of the master it's kind of unclear about whether he was legitimately under mind control or whether it was just political thing, game you know? um also, this is the first time the master was not played by Roger Delgado. Oh, um, right. We get creepy Skeletor mask guy. Because the uh, Peter Pratt um, played the master in this. Good um, for him. And uh, I wish they would have just let him show his face and done makeup on him. But like, I'm whatever. not sure why. I'm not sure why they went this route unless it. Like, I think they were trying to dis- disguise the fact that it was the master. You know. Um, oh, that's fair. At, at the beginning, you know. Um, Although if you had a new actor playing him, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure what the genesis of that decision is. Yeah. Um, but um, not, basically, this is you know you get this one story with the master, and then you really don't get another for years. I mean, this is kind of it kind of exists in a vacuum mm-hmm. um, in terms of the show kind of doing the master as a character. And I I kind of wish that they had just let the master go after Delgado died. I kind of wish that okay now we just kind of. I I think at least for a while longer maybe. Um, it'll be another four years before you see Because this doesn't again. have to be a master story. Like, they make it a master story. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, ma- they make it need to be a master story by saying, oh, it has to be somebody who's excellent at math, not just good, and, you know, like, those kind of things. Well, but it could easily be dialed but, back to... But the, but the but excellent God, math yeah. thing, I mean, the doctor describes the, like, technology on Gallifrey. This stuff is old. It's outdated. It's, mm-hmm. it's dusty. It's, it's mm-hmm. crap. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the kind of authorities, the officials, mm-hmm. you know, think, oh, this is like impregnable. And it's like, no, you guys, you're, you're, you're dusty and officious and you have no idea what's really going on in the world around you. You're a bunch of old fucking white dudes who aren't in touch with reality. Did, did you notice there is no female actor in this story? Yeah. There is a woman, um, Helen Blatch plays the voice of the computer and that's it. There is no other. There is. There is not even a woman extra standing in a background store of on Gallifrey. On the basis of this story, you could argue there are no female time lords. Sigh, she said. I. I mean, I don't know how I feel about that fact. Honestly, I think, you know, in that time period, saying, "Oh, we're going to make everybody neutral," does mean making everybody a white mm-hmm. white dude, um, and trying to set kind of a neutral feeling. For Gallifrey of some to some degree, but uh, I don't know that that's hard for me to kind of talk about in terms of historically where I I don't know historically like 
feminism and stuff at its point. Certainly Doctor Who was... Um, I mean, Sarah Jane's been around, so I know that there's been... You know, and we talked about Zoe, and we talked about Liz mm-hmm. Shaw, and we talked about, you know, um, Anne Travers. But it um, would not have been as unusual at the time that this was filmed for there to be, like, no women in a show. Right. Well, the the idea that, you know, simply that, you know, we're, we're talking about a bunch of politicians and they're all dudes. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, that's, that's a... That's the thing. You know, and, um, like, and so I think, not to say that that is above criticism, but it it is its own thing. Although, interestingly, just a couple of years from the time this is made, Margaret Thatcher is going to be Prime Minister of England. Huh. With all that that implies. That is really fascinating, actually. Um, one more quick bit of trivia, just uh, while we're um, working on this. Um, Twelve Generations. Uh, literally invented by Robert Holmes in this story as a plot device, and it becomes a thing that uh, drives people crazy for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Um, Robert Holmes even said that he intended it to be just like 12, 12 generations for the master, like it wasn't supposed to be this universal thing. Oh my god! But then god. it got brought back up in other stories, and it becomes like, and it became canon from there. But uh, he was asked about it, like, and he was like, "No, I just meant it to be like, you know." That's funny. He's he's done his twelve, so that's it. Like that's all he got, but not like, oh, you only get twelve. Just like that's all he got, yeah. you know. Also, the uh, the word uh, shabagon or shab shabogan uh, is uh, stated for the first time in this story, and those are the uh, they're the hooligans on Gallifrey. They're the uh they're the they're the people uh uh like basically shooting paintballs and doing graffiti and all that sort of thing. Um, or Shabagon? Or Shabogan, I think is actually how it's pronounced. But uh the reason that I think of the word is because there's this uh, great Doctor Who writer named Jack Graham who uh I sent you a piece that he wrote which we're probably gonna talk about on the show one of the, mm-hmm. um but uh he is uh, kind of the, the great leftist Doctor Who writer mm-hmm. and his uh, blog is Shabagon Graffiti. Um so I, I just love want, it. Okay, um, that's yeah. great. It's great. Um, uh, he actually follows me on Twitter. It's pretty oh, awesome. Yay, cool. So if you listen to this dude, yeah, probably not. But um, yeah. good title. He's got he's got better things to do with his time than to pay attention to us. Although if you do, Jack Grant, and want to come on the show, I would love to have you on the show. So. Yeah. And the Matrix. Um, this is the, uh, the I believe the first mention of the Matrix. Uh, which was the uh, place where all the Time Lord kind of souls reside. Um, oh, right. The, the uh, surrealistic. I think uh, I refer to it as the brain jelly thing. The brain jelly thing, sure. Um, the brain jelly computer. The Matrix also, um, obviously, uh, the death in heaven, dark water thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the Matrix. Uh, which just goes to show you how um, the certain uh, creator of the or the uh, the showrunner today um, clearly had no idea of how to use such a powerful concept. No. Um, but we're not going to talk about that either. No. Uh, I have much more important things to talk about. Yeah, let's move on. Mary Whitehouse. So who is Mary Whitehouse? Mary Whitehouse was the Tipper Gore of her day. That uh... Even that might be a dated reference for, for people. Because <laughs> um, that was 25 years ago. The Tipper Gore was who's, who's like our Tipper Gore, Tipper Gore of now? Like Bachman or... No, I mean... I mean... D- so Sarah Palin. Well, nobody, nobody's like. It's funny, like people aren't really trying to censor things, like in terms of like they've just given just, up. No, they've just given up, like moral <laughs> panic over like what's on TV. I mean, I guess like the 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 family research council or whatever. You know, the uh, there are plenty of groups. You know. Yeah, no, they've all they turned have, against the gays. They don't have time for violence anymore. They don't have time to talk about like you know naughty language on television or. I mean, you do have some moral busybodies anyway. Tipper Gore got famous in the uh, early nineties. Um, she was the 
uh, wife of Vice President Al Gore, obviously. Mm-hmm. And she wanted. She's the one who got the parental advisory label labels on CDs. Right. Um, like and that's and video games, essentially, for that matter. Well, video, that was a different thing, but like Technically, her yeah. big thing was about like um, you know media consumption and about like yeah. essentially. However, and this is my only like defense of Tipper Gore because of Tipper Gore Zappa and um oh god d snyder got to testify in court opposing tipper gore opposing tipper gore and frank zappa um frank zappa is was amazing was amazing and and honestly d snyder has said a lot of really wonderful things um so to be (laughs) fair when when people protest um the media the media sometimes comes back and uh bites them in the ass so, yeah. anyways. Uh, Mary Whitehouse, sort of the Tipper yeah. Gore of that time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, her whole thing was, the, you know, the, uh, the Simpsons lady, won't someone think of the children? Yeah. Um, that's kind of Mary Whitehouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary Whitehouse was this old lady who uh, spent a lot of time watching the BBC and presumably other television channels in the UK. Yeah. And uh, complaining about the things that she saw that were so, not okay for children. Now, did she write about them publicly? Yes. She, she was kind of this moral crusader who was okay. constantly like, you know, fighting against what she saw as like moral decrepitude on television, and she had issues with this episode. She had issues. There was there there were a lot. Um, there was a lot of stuff I didn't show you. I mean, you think about like Mask of Mandragora, which has like human sacrifice, and you know, like, and you say, would you sit a five year old in front of this? Yeah, and I mean, of course, like that's always the issue when we're talking about censorship, right? Is mm-hmm. like, would you would you let a child watch this? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well. Is it meant for children? Well, and that's the question. I mean, Doctor Who, I think, in that time frame is... And this is this is something that's important. I've been reading uh, Phil Sandifer's blog mm-hmm. um, because he went through all of Doctor Who. And I mm-hmm. sat down and I started just rereading through the whole thing just mm-hmm. as when I had mm-hmm. a few minutes, I'd read a, an entry or two or, or five. And he talks a lot about how, particularly in this time frame, one of the differences between Star Trek and Doctor Who... Mm-hmm. Star Trek ran for three years. Star Trek is a real-life science show. It's a show that is, like... Mm-hmm. Doctor Who was a popular show. Like, this was, this is like CSI or something, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, like, what's the biggest show on television today? Probably Brother or something. But, like, you know, Doctor Who in the UK is not like this cult phenomenon. Doctor right. Who is like this massively. No, it's, it's, um, it's a thing. Like, it's, it's, I, it's popular entertainment. I have met, like, a few British people um, and Welsh. <laughs> People, people um, from the UK. That from the you UK. Can just... Yeah, there we Let, go. Let's, let's not... <laughs> I just don't want to offend my Welsh friend um, if she randomly heard this. Anyways, um, when I say, do you watch Doctor... I'm a big Doctor Who geek. They're like, oh, okay. Every single person has a doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, I'm not really into Doctor Who except for John Pertwee era. Mm-hmm. Like, that's usually the response is, well, I was never really into Doctor Who, but this one's my doctor. Like, we don't have a show in the U.S. where we can say, you know, I didn't really like Star Trek, but um, Kirk or Picard. Like, Kirk or Picard is like, you have to be geeky to care. Right. Um, Archer, obviously. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no. Well... I think that in terms of, I always compare um, Doctor Who in the UK to Superman US in terms of kind of yeah. cultural cachet. In terms mm-hmm. of, you know, like people who are not like comic book geeks mm-hmm. will go like, oh yeah, I watched the Christopher Reeves or, you or know, Batman or Batman. I mean, you know, like superhero, like, like mm-hmm. big, massive, these things make lots of money. And right. Doctor Who was just, I mean, it was on TV for 26 years. It was hugely, well, and you know, to make, in the 70s. to make that comparison. You know, we have a character like Batman in the U.S. that went from being 
a hugely cheesy TV show, even though, like, you know, I'm not degrading that show because it has its own amazing things, Eartha Kitt as Catwoman being one of the many. Um, You're just getting more and more queer every day. Every day. You go from that into the 80s, so really much later in the U.S., to then we're having the redefining of Batman into the really dark character that he is mm-hmm. now. And uh, uh, I'm going to say the wrong Miller. It's neither. It's, it's Henry Miller, right? No. Mark Miller, Frank Miller. Frank... Which one? Mark? Which one? Who wrote The Dark Knight Rises? I don't know. <laughs> I'm so awful with names. Ugh, it's it's Google. I blame it on Google. Anyways, um, it was Frank Miller. Frank Miller, thank you. I knew it was Frank Miller. Um, Mark anyways. Miller did Kick Ass. <laughs> so that's right. And, and it's Henry Mark Miller Noir. did Tropic of Cancer or whatever. And, but so I can see like if we're looking for an American comparison of like something that went from very kids and goofy to very heavy, mm-hmm. um, like that would be something that I could think of. But even then, I I don't know it. it I think if we're talking about would you sit a child down in front of this, um, you know, my answer is going to be what it is with everything, which, because I'm a big old fucking hippie liberal queer, queer mo, um, is, yeah, I, I'd sit, I'd watch it with them. Sure. I'd, I'd want to have a conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think essentially this episode is about questioning your government. Well, and that's another thing. I mean, let's. Again, let let's give Mary Whitehouse her like yeah. her 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 due, all right? Yeah. Um going back to Terror of the Autons, you know, mm-hmm. when the cops in the story are kind of bad guys cuz they're like they they're autons and they're, you know, mm-hmm. they don't have faces and so like her claim was and so this goes back several years right. even at this point. Oh, children are going to be scared of cops. They're not going to want to go to cops if they're in trouble because... Mm -hmm. And here in the U.S., we have our own questions about that, particularly if you're a young child of color. But, um, you know, where the cops maybe are not very uh, kind to you. But Mm -hmm. um, those are are the kinds of arguments. And particularly with the Deadly Assassin. um, Well, okay, so... Well, this is her argument. I'm going to give you her argument. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the, the end of episode three? Which one is the end of episode three? So a third of the Deadly Assassin, roughly, takes place in the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of episode three, the Doctor's head is being held underwater. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, Mary Whitehouse seriously argued that young children would think, because there's a week between airings of the story, that the Doctor, having his head held underwater, and then it goes to freeze frame, and then the, the story ends, that young children would think that the Doctor's head was going to be underwater for a whole week and would be terrified for the Doctor. Ooh. Which that is makes my head hurt. Which is such a like misunderstanding of like how media works. And storytelling. Right, right. <laughs> you know. Um but that 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 was her that was only her argument. Um Well and it's funny because there are much much better arguments to be made, like, but she's missing them, apparently. Absolutely. Um but so the point that I was getting to, um, because the real dialogue of the story, in my mind, is, uh, again, about how we view not only politics, but political history and the story of history. We have a discussion between uh, Barusa, Cardinal Barusa. Barusa is uh, Angus McKay. Um, 
And he's the one who is, is trying to kind of say what we're going to tell people. And he says, okay, our story is going to be that the master arrived in Gallifrey to assassinate the president secretly. Before he could escape, Chancellor Goth tracked him down and killed him, unfortunately perishing himself in the exchange of fire. Now that's much better, I can believe that. And the whole truth is stranger than fiction kind of thing questioned um and then engine well, then manipulating your political you know manipulating right. reality for political ends yeah and engine says you're making goth into a hero because clearly he's been the villain and barusa responds if heroes don't exist it is necessary to invent them good for public morale so again we have like this is so loaded with just political information and... Also goth, sorry. Blonde-haired and blue-eyed. I just know. Just to, uh, you know... I know. There's so much going on here. Um, especially because then Engine says, and the doctor's part in all this. Which, honestly, that, that should be the answer, right? Well, if you need a hero, why not the doctor? And of course, the doctor is this disgraced person who uh, ran away and is a convicted criminal by Gallifreyan standards. So Barusa says... Just forgotten of course doctor the charge against you will be dropped and so it's like yeah no 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 we'll take the real hero and we'll just keep him a bad guy but we won't put him in jail um and the doctor calls him out on his shit and says how kind Bruce says well i mean that's you gotta leave tonight though and do the doctor says you know somehow i don't want to stay um and then but Barusa asks him before he leaves to uh, write a new biography, biog, um, of the master, since he knows the master so the well. The biog are those, uh, they're the, the, data, the, the files. data file things. Yeah, yeah. I just get it. Just clarify, making sure, you know. Yeah. I just thought that that was like, oh, that's dumb. Um, <laughs> it's a very, like, this is what we call science fiction things in 1975. <laughs> right, exactly. And he says, uh, and Barusa says it doesn't have to be entirely accurate. And the doctor answers, like Time Lord history. Increasingly, and, mm -hmm. as we learn more about Gallifrey, we're going to get, I mean, this becomes the theme mm -hmm. of, of that. The more we learn about the Time Lords, the more we learn that they are lying to themselves about the history. And that, you know, the heroes that they thought they had were, for the most part, total rampaging lunatics. Yeah, um, sound like anybody else? Mark Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I love this because for Ronald me, Reagan? it is applicable... <laughs> It is applicable to so many stories of revolution, where the revolutionaries mm -hmm. are painted as like, eh, you know, let me whitewash everything that you did, make you, you know. Well, the Doctor is very clearly a revolutionary, and mm -hmm. has been, I mean, basically since, I mean, really from the beginning you could make the argument, but, but certainly as early as, I mean, no later than the Space Museum, which is first Doctor serial. Well, and I mean, um, you can easily compare this to, I mean, what year did this air? 75? You know, you at, that 75 or 76. at that time you got the Red Scare in the U.S., you got John Lennon. Well, and, and, and I mean, the U.K. would certainly, I mean, John Lennon would certainly have been a big figure. Yeah, John Lennon going to, to court um, to respect stuff. Uh, to it, it, It's just like... It's so clearly calling out politics mm -hmm. and, and cultural and cultural you know, politics and... and how that is institutionalized and mm -hmm. how that is a part of history and saying, well, just because we think this is the truth doesn't mean it is the truth because some dude at some point decided this is how we were going to tell the story. Mm -hmm. Now, that story, I want to show every fucking kid on the planet. And I want them to see it. But you're you know. a liberal hippie queermo. Right. And so, like, I totally understand why she would she would want to censor this. Because this is... But that's not why she wants to censor it. No. She wants to censor it because 
it's violent. Right. Like rap music. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, and, so this is where we're this is yeah. where we're leading. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, I mean, this the Deadly Assassin, mm-hmm. um, not the Masking Man Dragger necessarily, but like this mm-hmm. era, the darker it gets, the more complaints you get from people like Mary Whitehouse. Mm-hmm. It eventually moves into a much more kid friendly direction, and that's where the next era kind of comes from. Yeah. Um, but the Deadly Assassin is definitely one of those turning points in that sense as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean. It either would have had to evolved into an adult drama mm-hmm. and embraced the fact that it was making, it was talking about social change and social issues, or it had to go back and, you know, scare quotes, dumb itself down to be a kid show. And the next era, Graham mm-hmm. Williams era, there's some great stuff in the Graham Williams era, mm-hmm. but this is when we're definitely going to, when we talk about like Kena, for instance. Right. Canine is this very kid friendly kind of mm-hmm. thing. And, Anyway, just wanted to to bring that up just before we left. Um, Well, because I think as I was looking for quotes, you know, I'm flipping through episodes and I see the next episode and the cover or picture that I get is Tom Baker actually in the background, Leela in the front. Mm -hmm. um, And is K-9 in that? No, no. No. The next one is The Face of Evil. Um, That's actually our next story we're going to be covering. So, but uh, to hear you say... Oh, yeah, this political intrigue. Yeah, they had a lot of problems with that. And then you have Leela, who's, like, in a leather bikini. Did they have issues with that? They, they, there were definitely people who had issues with that. Okay, yeah. at, le- okay. Um, at least they're fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and we'll we'll cover that a lot more when we get to the next story. Yeah. Um, um, but I, I think what is clearly what is um, connecting with me so much now is, like, I think all, all of the political discussion of this episode is completely accurate oh, yeah. and um, useful today the deadly assassin i think that there aren't a lot of people who would say this is the absolute greatest story in doctor who history um i don't think it is Mm -mm. um but it's definitely one of the it's one of the really good ones it's one that i feel like if you wanted to show someone who didn't who wasn't gonna be a doctor who fan but you wanted to say hey watch an episode like this it'll feel like you're watching an action movie or spy movie mm-hmm. um you don't really need to know anymore it, it's very um self-contained self-contained um so i think it would make a good episode to show people to talk about like um you know if you were gonna like our friend paul booth uh if you were going to teach a class on doctor who and you wanted to talk about like <clears throat> how it speaks to social politics mm-hmm. i would definitely put this in like one of my top five episodes yeah. Um, no, I mean, th- this would definitely be, I mean, I've seen them all and I would say this is definitely one of the ones to, you know, we yeah. talk about. Um, but yeah, I could say how, like, maybe it's not the best episode or of any one kind, but it feels like a very important episode or it's, story. It's incredibly important. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else you have to say about the Deadly Assassin? Um. Sexy Tom Baker. Sexy Tom Baker. Sexy uh, Yuri Pravda. George Pravda, sorry. No. I love Yuri Pravda, uh, George Pravda. I think he's really funny. Um, you complained about his acting the well, first time. So we started watching this story. Yeah. And um, Shane, I think, was just like, we had just finished The Mask of Mandragora, and I'm like, oh, we'll put on like the first part of The Daily Assassin. And you were just kind of done, and you were sleepy, and you were probably medicated. Yeah. And well, so, you were and like, what, what a, a shitty actor. <laughs> What I disliked when I was doped up that I liked when I wasn't um, is, again, these characters have personalities and uh, drug doped up Shana could not tell, like, that uh, the investigator was basically... Spandrel. Spandrel was kind of um, 
I don't want to say making fun of the guy he was talking to, but like there, there was an air, there was an attitude that was purposeful that I did not know. Right. Anyway. Um, but I do, I have one more thing that I want to say. Okay. Um, one more quote. Uh, and I wanted to save this till the end because, uh, so we have a very recent episode of Doctor Who where we talk about fear as, as strength. Listen. Listen. Which I love. But this episode talks about hatred as the master. Um, and, and so Doctor says, the master's consumed with hatred. It's his one great weakness. And the master says, weakness, Doctor. Hate is strength. And the doctor says, not in your case. You delay an execution to pull the wings off a fly. I love fear. Like the distinction of how hatred is being talked about here from fear. Again, like it's kind of random, but it was a great moment. And I feel like it kind of puts into perspective how we're talking about emotional power um, in this era of Doctor Who versus where we are now. Because, um, you know, what Listen did for now was make me say, okay, the doctor sees fear as strength. How is that affecting this doctor? You know, like that seems like a very clear character defining point. Um, So to have the fourth doctor have this who I love for very different reasons than Peter Capaldi's doctor. Um, but to have Tom Baker's doctor kind of say like, yeah, hate might be strength for some people, but not for you. And that kind of subtle distinction of how it's talked about of like fear is strength because it does this versus hatred is weakness, especially for you, because this is how you let it take control of you. That kind of, um, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm really saying, except for that I found it interesting. Uh, I don't know if it stood out to you. Apparently not. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, that's a great line. I mean, it's really just kind of showing how horrible the master is. And, and the mm-hmm. idea that, like, hatred, that the villains in Doctor Who, particularly the Daleks, you see it more and more yeah. with the Daleks, um, particularly later on. There are a couple of us in the Fifth Doctor era. Um, but you see, uh, you know, the Daleks will, will use hatred. The mm-hmm. master uses his hatred and believes it's the strength that, that compassion is really. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when you put it in the... I guess what I'm saying, when you put it in the context of a political story, sure. where you're talking about all these issues, and you know, I'm sitting here reading into all of this of like uh, contemporary uh, issues in Black America, mm-hmm. and which obviously the story wasn't written with that in mind. But no, I mean the themes. I guess the themes that it's exploring are yeah. to some degree universal. Yeah, and 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 for me, that's the mark of a good story. Is if I can look at this story and say, you know, the real problem in our country today is hatred and how it is used as a weakness so that you would stop all of the world from progressing so that you could just hate on some people you know Mm -hmm. we hate these people for no goddamn reason you know but someone will take advantage of that and And gays the, the the real hate is for um christian this country who are uh just right. just trying to go about their lives and don't want to see that gay stuff at face yeah and those are the real victims yeah. yeah and all the violence is because of the black because yeah. you know they have no reason to be angry so i i just there's so much in this episode that really made me think of just i mean he is writing to universal themes of motivations in politics in decision making and how we view them um and it kind of i mean it kind of blew my mind a little bit i was like whoa 
Like this episode came out of nowhere, and I'm and yet I'm saying it's like in my top five. Next week we're gonna talk about the face of evil. Yeah, am I gonna hate it? I I don't think so. Okay. I I think um again Robert Holmes script editor, right? Philip Hinchcliffe producer. Oh my god, am I gonna be depressed? Am I depressed? Why are we gonna be? De- are, are you just the cause of the based yeah, on what I'm because, saying? Because history turns goth into a hero. That's why I'm depressed. Well. You just wait to see the face. Okay. Goth isn't in that. No. But Leela's in that one. Yeah. You get to be introduced to Leela. Yay, Leela. I'm Next so week. psyched. And I want to mention this just in case, again, you know, someone hears. Uh, <laughs> I'm really excited about Leela because of the costume winner at TARDIS last year was this lady who did a great Leela costume and had a little two daughters that were dressed as uh, Romana and Zoe, and they were adorable as well. Um, and so seeing that family unit <laughs> made me be like dude i can see like how leela is an empowering character um because zoe and romana are definitely like they came out of an elevator and they just looked like they were ready to kick some doctor who ass um you are feeling so feminist kick ass right now i am Mad Max. i know and uh so the next doctor should be charlie's theron and <laughs> <laughs> anyway um, I'm excited to see Leela because I know she means a lot to a lot of people. She does. She's a really important companion. Yeah. And, uh, we're actually going to do, I think we're going to do three of her stories. Cool. So, um, and we're going to watch her first story awesome. next week. Awesome. And that is going to be The Face of Evil. Awesome. Final thoughts? Final thoughts. Watch Classic Who. Watch Mad Max. Fury Road. Fury Road. I mean, you can watch the other ones if you want to. You haven't seen those? Be a better person. Change the world. And until next week, the TARDIS is closed. Bye-bye. You can find all our episodes on iTunes or at oispaceman.libsyn.com. That's oispaceman.libsyn.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Follow Shayna on Twitter or Tumblr at Inkyosa, that's I-N-K-Y-O-S-A, or Daniel at Daniel E. Harper at either location.